everyone, I'm Lida Vanegas, Vice President of Marketing and Communications at Mary Center in Washington, D.C., and one of this year's judges of the Clarence B. Jones Impact Award, an award that celebrates and promotes communications for good that have made a difference. And this year's winner has certainly done that. Before I announce that winner, let me tell you that this nonprofit is the largest immigrant youth organization in the country that advocates for dreamers and through very innovative marketing campaigns and very strategic tactics with tons of storytelling, they have gotten the attention of the Supreme Court and the country at large. Now that is impact. On behalf of my fellow judges, we're thrilled to announce United We Dream as the 2021 Clarence B. Jones Impact Award. Please welcome Bruna Solard and Jose Munoz, who share a case study keynote on their Home is Here campaign. Hi, everyone. My name is Bruna Buhit Solid, and this year I have the honor of accepting the Clarence B. Jones Impact Award on behalf of United We Dream staff and our millions of members across the country. I want to acknowledge that this is the first time in the awards history that the communications work of undocumented people has been recognized and that two undocumented people, me and Jose, are giving the keynote this year. For us, this win is not just about executing a communications campaign with impact. It's about ensuring that directly impacted people are leading in every aspect of our work. The vision, the strategy, and the execution of the Home is Here campaign was led by all undocumented young people. My hope for all of you watching at home right now is that if you're undocumented, if you're a young person of color, you see yourself in the work that we did, and it inspires you to take big leaps in your own communications work that will lead to wins that impact us all. If you're an ally, we encourage you to make the space to listen and follow the lead of directly impacted people. Because when we do, magical breakthroughs happen. Thank you so much for this special honor. Now for introductions. I was born in Brazil. I grew up in Florida. I am undocumented and I am unafraid. And along with 11 million other undocumented people in this country, I am here to stay. I proudly serve as United We Dreams Communications Director, and now I'm gonna pass it on to my colleague, Jose, to introduce himself. Thank you so much, Bruna, and good afternoon, everyone. My name is Jose Munoz. I have the pleasure of serving as the Deputy Communications Director for United We Dream. Uh, a little bit about myself. Um, I came to the US from Mexico when I was just a few months old, and I grew up queer and undocumented in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, I have a degree in communications from the University of Minnesota, and oftentimes growing up undocumented, it was hard to see myself reflected in the spaces that I, I was hoping to be, to be in. Uh, and so it really honestly is such an honor to be here today sharing this space with all of you, uh, even if it's uh, through a screen. Uh, you know, in my work, I have the privilege of helping to tell the stories of undocumented young people and our families. And today you'll get a really special behind the scenes in how we used our communications prowess to protect undocumented people at the Supreme Court. We'll share lessons uh, that we've learned with from our campaign so that you can use it in your own work. Uh, and we have a really packed agenda today. Uh, so I wanna make sure we get started right away. Bruna. 
Now we're gonna show you what United We Dream is all about with our video. Living undocumented has never been easy. As a community, we have faced insurmountable challenges on the road to creating a life for ourselves and our loved ones that's filled with dignity, rest, joy, and pride. But with every attack, immigrant youth have drawn from the courage, resilience, and power of our ancestors to protect one another. With every legislation pushed by racist politicians and every violent act of terror enacted by white supremacists, we have come together with our families, our friends, and our community members to heal, organize, and create a better life for all of us. We, immigrant youth and youth of color, have never stayed quiet. We have marched. We have rallied, we have defied injustice, and fought back. This energy and this spirit is what won us DACA, but it's also what allowed us to shut down detention camps in Tornillo, Texas, and Fort Sale, Oklahoma. It's how we won financial aid for undocumented students and driver's licenses for our community. We are a youth movement. We are powerful. We are our own protectors. There is no stopping us. We hope that video showed you a little bit about what United We Dream is all about. But United We Dream is the largest immigrant youth-led network in the country. We were founded in 2008, and now we have nearly 1 million members. Being undocumented can lead to discrimination and fear. We are often denied basic human rights, like health care, workers' rights, access to driver's license, the ability to travel outside the country. All of those things are things that a lot of U.S. citizens can take for granted. But United We Dream was created for and by immigrant young people to transform that fear into power. Power so that we can fight for our rights and win campaigns that bring justice and dignity for immigrants and all people. So let's talk about our communications work and the Home Is Here campaign. Thanks, Bruna. And now we are gonna have the opportunity to talk to you about the case study uh, that, that helped us uh, be here in this moment with all of you, which was a campaign that we led to protect immigrant young people uh, at the Supreme Court during the Trump administration. But let's take a step back first uh, and let's talk about what is DACA in the, in the first place. Um, DACA stands for the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program. Uh, you're gonna hear us say it DACA for short. Um, it's a policy that was instituted by President Obama in 2012, which provides a two-year renewable work permit and protections from deportation. Both Bruna and I are DACA recipients. So for those of you that may have never heard of DACA before, uh, now you can say that you know two DACA recipients. Um, the thing that is important to recognize about DACA is that um, it does not provide a pathway to citizenship and it's just temporary. I'm sharing on the screen now, you'll see uh, what we think are two really iconic imageries. This is actually the day that President Obama announced DACA in the Rose Garden. Um, and I wanna share that the story of DACA doesn't begin here. Uh, it started uh, years before that. It really came to be because of immigrant young people from United We Dream who led a courageous and relentless campaign to demand a stop to the pain of deportations and pressure the Obama administration to take action to protect our communities. The reality is that the campaign for what became DACA really started in 2012, when President Obama and his legislative majority in the Senate and the House failed to pass the DREAM Act, which is a bill which would provide a path to citizenship for immigrant young people. We did not um, relent. We knew that we had to protect our communities any way that we could. And so we made the decision to pressure President Obama. 
We strategized and we took over Obama re-election campaign offices. We shared our stories and we did everything we could think of to push the administration over their record number of deportations. And that's how we won DACA. The victory of DACA really is a testament to the power of youth organizing and movement building. And it is a victory that was won and implemented through United We Dream's Own the Dream and Right to Dream campaigns, which were led by directly impacted young people. Thanks to our efforts, DACA has been the largest victory in immigration in over 30 years, protecting at its height over 800,000 young people. So as you can imagine, when we saw the possibility of it being challenged by an incoming administration, we knew we immediately had to take action to protect our victory. Um, as a candidate, Trump made it very clear that immigrants would be a target of his vitriol and racism. We knew that he would come after the protections we had with DACA. So we weren't surprised that he ended the DACA program in September of 2017. So we strategized. We had to both save the program and change the narrative about immigrants, who we were and what we deserved. So that led us to a two-pronged approach in the months and years following DACA's rescission. As you can see in the picture, we mobilized across the country with actions, with rallies with press conferences to ensure that every single American person knew what DACA was, that we were in threat of deportation and what they could do about it. And then we also worked with partners and litigators on the legal fight to make the case that Trump was wrong to end the DACA program. And now we head to the Supreme Court. All of this work was done over the span of two years when we got the news that the legal case on whether Trump followed the right procedures to end DACA was going to be heard by the Supreme Court. And there's our biggest communications challenge to win a Supreme Court case during the Trump administration. During an administration and a president that was going to be hateful, loud, and he would have much bigger platforms than we did. So back to strategizing. We knew that with the makeup of the Supreme Court in 2019, our only chance to win was to get Chief Justice Roberts to vote with the other four liberal justices. Chief Justice Roberts was then the swing vote and we needed to convince him that we were right and Trump was wrong. With that target, we set out to show Chief Justice Roberts the stakes of his decision and that if he ruled the wrong way, he would be impacting not only 800,000 DACA recipients, but over 2 million US citizens that have a loved one with DACA. We also needed to show the that the American people cared about this issue because we know that Supreme Court justices in their rulings try to take into account where our country is at at that particular moment. And that leads us to our goals for our campaign. Our communications goals to win at the Supreme Court were these. We needed to tell the stories of who was impacted by the decision, not through the stereotypes that the media and politicians use about us, but based on our lived experiences. We also needed to make the stakes really, really clear. If Trump ended DACA, we would be put on a pathway to deportation. Our last goal is about you know, us knowing that this fight is not just about DACA. DACA, like Jose mentioned, is temporary. It leaves millions of people out. DACA for us is the floor, not the ceiling of what we deserve. So with this campaign, we needed to also tell the stories of undocumented people who were living in threat of detention and deportation and did not have DACA protecting them. This goal supported our long-term strategy to deliver citizenship for millions. And I'll hand it over to Jose to share our solutions. 
So our solution here really was kind of simple. We wanted to disrupt. When it came to meeting the moment, we knew there was too much at stake not to. It was important for us to use our strengths as an organization and as a movement. And that really started with one of our main tactics uh, in front of the Supreme Court. United We Dream has trained thousands of young people to share their stories. And we've actually done amicus briefs at the Supreme Court in the past, but we knew we had to think outside the box. We had to come up with something different. And uh, recently the Supreme Court had started accepting new forms of amicus briefs aside from the general legal briefs. And so we made a decision to use that to our advantage. And we created the first of its kind video amicus brief. Ultimately, we knew that the impact of this decision was on people. And so we wanted to make our stories inescapable. So we chose to do video storytelling briefs as a way for the court to hear the stories of DACA recipients in their own words. We wanted them to see the DACA recipients and their families. We wanted them to follow us for a day and recognize the impact of their decision. Uh, one of my favorite moments from one of the nine videos that we produced and submitted to the court uh, was one where we follow a DACA recipient named Sana, who lives in New York. And my favorite moment from that video is when we follow her on her commute to work, she takes the subway. And it seems like a really mundane task, uh, which I know many of us might take for granted right now since our commutes you know, might be just to the next room. But at that time, it was just such a mundane thing to see Sana riding the subway going to work, but we juxtaposed it with her narrating the story of her brother being deported and her own fear that if she were to lose DACA, she could be detained and deported. With these videos, it was really important that we were being inclusive as well of the vast experiences of DACA recipients. We were all different ages, different sexual orientations. We spoke different languages and came from different countries. But why don't I just show you an example of one of them? Uh, I wanna show you a video that we produced and submitted to the court from a DACA recipient named Manny. At the end of the day, before being a judge, before being a pastor, a preacher, a soccer player, any title, a basketball player, you're a human being. Before being an immigrant in any country, you're a human being. You're human first. I was nine years old. Mama said I was born in Nigeria and I moved to the States when I was nine in 2003. My family moved here for better opportunities and to kind of start a new legacy, I guess. Being undocumented affects everything. Things like health insurance, if you're a student, things like financial aid, can't start a business, you can't work, you feel like you're a prisoner. As a kid, you're watching your mom like just struggle and feel really helpless and you're not able to do anything. I had to leave school for my sister to finish because we couldn't afford to pay tuition for myself and my sisters. Little by little, we started just losing everything. And then my dad got deported. So I had to step up. I had to kind of become a dad for like my, for my younger siblings and I had to become a better friend to my mom. 
it's, it's either you work and figure it out or you lose this fight in life. started noticing how like music made me feel and how therapeutic it was produced to be sing or rap into a mic and let that feeling go and then when you let it out to the world people connect to what you're saying if it's my way. a big fear of mine is my brothers growing up without family without mom myself or my sister because they're young so like what would they do how they eat if I was deported. Um, when I first received DACA, man, I, I was with my mom and my sister and we were just like praising God. She was just really, really happy. She's like, yes, this is good. This is something we can do something for mom, with mom, for ourselves. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray that you shall just keep us safe, oh God, we pray for our family. I just started going harder with everything that I was interested in doing. You know, started my own LLC, started my own company, all that cool stuff. Started taking music seriously, but I was still working. Um, I was able to like tour, get on the road with, and I worked on a project that won two Grammys. Thank God my following is spreading. I have fans in like DC, Maryland, Virginia, People in New York, Atlanta, LA. DACA recipients, a lot of us are here to make a change. We're here to grow with the country and we're here to provide for our families. My name is Emmanuel. I am a son, I am a brother, I'm a friend, I'm a lover of music. I am a DACA recipient, a human being. I was brought to come and leave the American dream. Come and leave the American dream. Wow, I, I almost want to just sit for a second with that. Um, that is an example of uh, the videos that the Supreme Court justices got to see as part of our amicus brief. And there were various communication strategies and tactics that we took on throughout this campaign. It was over a year long. Uh, but we're going to focus on just a few things and, and some of the lessons that we learned. Um, and one was really that while we were disrupting at the Supreme Court with, you know, the first of its kind video amicus brief, like Bruna mentioned earlier, part of the strategy here was also to expand the conversation and make sure that aside from the justices who were getting this brief, that we were making sure other people were seeing these videos as well. And so earned media was a major strategy in our work. We needed to make sure that the stories were getting into publications that we knew that Chief Justice Roberts and his legal clerks would read. And we also were working with reporters who were already covering our issue and our stories to make sure that they were doing so in a nuanced way. Um, part of our media strategy was really to ensure that we were increasing the reach of the people who were getting these stories and turning our owned content, which you got to see, uh, into earned media. And there's two really good examples of doing that, uh, disrupting traditional pitching. One was uh, we worked with publications like Now This. Uh, they have a very specific style of video. And so we gave them our videos and we said, cut them into what works for your audience. Uh, and so they ended up doing that with two uh, of the videos that we produced. 
Similarly, we also worked with publications like NPR, uh, who also have a very specific way of telling stories. And so we actually provided the video, the audio only with none of the background music. So it kind of sounded like reporters were actually in the, on the ground, in the field, doing the interviews with these people themselves. Uh, and so it was really important for us to be really thinking outside of the box to ensure that we were turning this, this own content into earned media. Uh, we also uh, made sure that we recognize that sometimes reporters and producers and editors in the media have their own idea in their head about how they want to tell a particular story. They have preconceived notions that sometimes we can find very limiting as people who work on this issue more closely. And so we also wanted to be very thoughtful and intentional about training our spokespeople to make sure that we were finding ways to disrupt these preconceived notions and telling the true story of who undocumented young people were and making sure that the story that was being told about the Supreme Court's decision was about the people it would impact and not about the, uh, the people who made that decision possible in the first place, like the Trump administration. Uh, Bruna's going to talk to us a little bit through about some other ways that we, we disrupted. So during the Supreme Court hearing, Chief Justice Roberts made a comment that had us all worried. He said that he did not believe the issue about DACA was deportation protection because he did not think the Trump administration would deport undocumented immigrant youth. We knew that was not true. We had seen immigrant youth being put on a path to deportation by the Trump administration. That was our lived experience. And Roberts was trying to erase the dangers that our community was in. So the question we had to grapple with was, how do you make someone who's so far removed from the lived experience to really want understand what this is about, that this was about deportation? So we were quick on our feet and we employed a few communications tactics that I'm showing you here in this slide. On the left, you'll, on the bottom left, you'll see an article that we worked with, uh, with Dara Lind, a very well-respected reporter. Our partners at Make the Road New York had data that showed the deportation force of ICE had access to the information of DACA recipients. That meant that ICE could get our home, our work address, and they could come knocking on our doors to detain and deport us. We knew that that information needed to create a big moment in the campaign, and it needed to happen before Chief Justice Roberts wrote the opinion. So again, we worked exclusively with Dara Lind from ProPublica to announce the information. Once that article broke, we knew that we couldn't only be the ones talking about it. We couldn't only be the ones that were being loud and disruptive about this. We needed to find key voices to amplify. We knew that then Senator Kamala Harris would get to ask questions of the head of ICE at a Senate hearing. And so what you see here is we gave Senator Harris, then Senator Harris, the information to ask a specific question to the head of ICE. When she asked them if they were going to plan to deport DACA recipients, he said that that was a possibility. So we used the clip from that hearing and we sent it across to every publication we knew to make sure they wrote about this. And you'll see that article here as well. Our second tactics, which you can see on the top right, was to show that DACA recipients themselves live with the fear of deportation, that it, we weren't just talking about it, our folks are really feeling it. So we worked with publications like MTV to do personal essays from DACA recipients themselves on the impact that this was having on their lives and their fears for their future, so that the American people, again, was hearing from all of these different voices 
to ensure that we were talk we were saying the same thing. The threat of deportation was real. We had proof. We had it from the mouth of the head of ICE and our people felt that fear. This, all of these articles you see, we really knew that we needed to get them in front of not only the Chief Justice Roberts, but his clerks as well. Um, now I'll pass it to Jose to talk about our last and third tactic. You know, in responding to the moment, it was really important to be agile in making sure that we recognized the reality that we were living in on, under COVID-19. Uh, and it was important for us to really highlight the impact that the Supreme Court ending DACA during a pandemic would have on DACA recipients and really on millions of Americans who relied on them as well. Uh, you know, the media wanted to paint a really broad brush about who frontline workers were. And it was important for us to use this moment and tell the story of the folks who were frontline workers who had DACA. We worked with United We Dream members who were working on the front lines as healthcare workers to talk about the impact of losing their work permit and what that would have on their ability to work and help to continue keeping us safe during the COVID-19 pandemic. In this, we were able to work with our spokespeople and we were able to tell really get really splashy headlines, unlike you see on screen at the New York Times and the Washington Post, and honestly, so many others. There were so many people um, in the media that, that were working with us to tell the story of, of DACA recipients who were working as healthcare workers. But even in that moment, we actually recognized that while this was an important story, we also knew that there were other people doing other essential roles. And so we needed to make sure that we were also expanding the conversation beyond just DACA recipients who were doctors or nurses. Uh, I relied on the media relationships that I already had built to pitch stories that were a little bit more outside the box than where the media wanted to tell the story. So you'll see on the screen, we worked with a reporter at Mother Jones to tell the story of a DACA recipient uh, who was living in Wyoming and was working as a grocery store worker. Uh, because the reality was that um, undocumented people, not just DACA recipients, were in other essential worker roles. They were working in grocery stores. They were working as janitors in hospitals. They were working as domestic workers and home aides. Undocumented people were really the ones helping to keep our country safe, fed, and healthy throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. And so we needed to make sure that the story did not stop with DACA recipients who were working uh, in the health industry. And beyond that as well, in terms of other times when we really had to be agile, uh, was in making sure that we were living up to our values. You know, last summer, we all saw Black leaders across the country leading a racial reckoning in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd by police in my home city of Minneapolis. It was important for us to make sure that we were continuing to lift up and be in solidarity with the movements leading this reckoning in that moment. And it was really an opportunity to lift up the experiences of Black people and Black immigrants. We worked with our partners at the Movement for Black Lives and organizations like Undocu Black and others to make sure that we were lifting up the realities of Black immigrants who are disproportionately impacted because they're undocumented. Our liberation was really tied to one another, and we don't believe that any of us are free until all of us are free. And so in that moment, we needed to make sure that we were updating our messaging to, to really reflect the moment that we were in. We actually didn't get a Supreme Court decision until June. Uh, we got it uh, right before Juneteenth. And so it was really important that as we were doing media around the decision on June 18th, 
that we were lifting up the reality that Black people were facing in this country, particularly uh, Black immigrants. And so it was important for us to make sure that we were being thoughtful about how we were showing up for our Black siblings. And so, Bruna, I'm going to let you walk us through our key learnings. So if you have a pen and paper with you or you're typing your computer, this is the time. We're going to share all our secrets, tell you everything. Um, storytelling is power. At the core of who you are as a communicator is you're a damn good storyteller. So use that superpower to tell the, uni the unique story of your organization, of your members. This is a, you can see that a huge lesson across all the, everything we've shared with you today. Our second lesson, center directly impacted people. This campaign would have looked completely different if consultants had led it. So make sure directly impacted people are in every single room where strategy is being developed and executed. Communicators are strategists. All of you here today, you understand comms, you get politics, you get culture, you get people. So again, make sure in your organization, you're not keeping communicators separate from your overall strategy discussions. Media pitching in creative ways. Don't let no's from reporters deter you. Think outside the box. Think about quantity, think about quality over quantity and make sure your work is disrupting the media landscape. We need that. We need to ensure there's more directly impacted people, people of color, young women, queer people as reporters in those rooms writing those stories. So we need to disrupt the media landscape as it is right now. Be agile. We all had to learn this lesson in 2020 and still today. And it applies so much to our work. Be ready to make changes to your strategy, to your tactics and your messaging. It's never too late to make those changes. And now I hope I'm not explaining too many things for you, but obviously we won our case at the Supreme Court. So I'm gonna hand it over to Jose to talk about our win. Uh, you know, after the hearing, we, uh, which happened in November of 2019, litigators were telling us that Justice Roberts was just simply not gonna side with us. Based on how the oral arguments went, it wasn't gonna happen. People in the media were already writing that uh, Justice Roberts would help the Trump administration end the DACA program. But we did not let that deter us because this was the fight of our lives. Uh, and we decided instead to spend the next six months changing the mind of Chief Justice Roberts and making the case to the American people of the moral imperative to protect immigrant young people. And Bruna mentioned the reality that we faced when during oral arguments, Robert said that this was not about deportation, it was just about work permits. And in his uh, opinion, he actually wrote the exact opposite and that the Department of Homeland Security acted um, in a way that disregarded the reality that people could be deported. And so with that, you see that it really was uh, our communications push that helped to bring us there. Uh, and so I think I get to invite Sean back to help us um, open it up to see if anyone has any questions. You, I need to unmute myself there. Sorry, gang. We do have a few questions. For those of you who may have a question, I am not looking in the chat. If you use the box just down below that says live Q&A, go ahead and hop in there. And we have a question. Our friend Will is coming in. Will, why don't you join us? Hi, thank you. Congratulations. This is really powerful. I was just wondering if you all could tell us a little bit more just about uh, the team that kind of put this together a little more granular just on, on what that looked like, the people involved and how they work together. Thank you. Yeah, I can. 
I can start a little bit with the videos. So when we started planning, uh, I want to say that it happened in May of 2019, like a group of United We Dream, people from United We Dream uh, from different departments, our communications team, our digital team, um, our, our advocacy or policy team, uh, folks from our field to really come together and think about what was the story that we wanted to tell in front of the Supreme Court? We had done a storytelling amicus brief in the past, uh, and so it was really important for us to, to think about how do we move beyond that? Uh, and so that was a team that came together. And then when it came time to producing the video, the videos, we worked with um, a director and producing team that was immigrants. Uh, we needed to make sure that the folks who were helping us to capture that footage, the folks who were helping us through the editing process as well, um, understood our issue in a way that was that was going to be impactful. It was also uh, really important for us to make sure that, uh, I think I mentioned this at the beginning, but we wanted to be really inclusive. Uh, and so the videos that we ended up producing were, um, we had um, Black immigrants featured. We had immigrants who were Muslim, uh, immigrants who were queer. We wanted to make sure that we understood what were some of the narratives that already existed about undocumented people, like who were the stories that were being told, and how could we make sure to be as inclusive as possible. Um, one thing that I'll share as well about the, the process to edit was that our team was extremely hands-on and it went through multiple rounds of editing. Uh, we got a lot of footage and there was a lot of different ways that the stories could be told. Uh, and so it was really important that we were being respectful to the storytellers, uh, who I'll say were all United We Dream members. Um, so all of the folks who were featured in the video and the brief were people that we had built relationships with for years that had really come to the network uh, as as young undocumented people who had either organized with us or, or shared spaces in other ways. And so it was important that we were respecting that relationship um, by staying really true to those stories. Um, I think that's a big piece of, of the video. And, and Bruno, I don't know if you wanna jump in with some of the other pieces of the campaign as well. Yeah, I think what we didn't get to share because obviously we have a limited amount of time and it was a year long campaign was that this was also a coalition. Um, the Home Is Here Coalition had Many, many partners, over 200, 300 people would join our calls every week strategizing, many of them membership-based organizations that also have undocumented young people. And so we relied on each other, right, to spread the word. Jose and I led the communications uh, work, um, so we got to, you know, strategize with other communicators like us. But at the center of it, what we wanted to make sure is that directly impacted people were leading the strategy. And that was at the core of the Home Is Here campaign. And I think why we were so successful. I really appreciate your question. Thank you for asking it. So I get the privilege of the next question. And this is maybe the elephant in the room. I've been seeing it in the chat. I'm gonna stop pointing because I don't know if I'm going the right direction. But suffice, in the chat, folks were wondering how many people were working with you, Bruna and Jose? It can't just have been the two of you. I think the presumption here is you have 200 people somewhere parked out in the back there who are doing all this work for you. Is that true? Tell there us what's going on. There was that, a lot of, I don't have a number. I can't quite say I know the exact number, but it was- But within your team, oh, within how, the, how's the comm shop at United We Dream organized? Okay. How many folks are in it and, and what are some of the, the key roles that you all have developed within the team? Sure. So within our communication team, and y'all are going to be shocked, but this is the truth. It's, it was only Jose and I. What, we what, were what, 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 no, no, no. You got to repeat that. How many people are doing comms at United We Dream? 
traditional comms is just Jose and I at the time. We're a bigger team now, which is very exciting. But I want to shout out our digital team, um, which at the time might have been eight or seven folks. They might get mad at me if I'm getting that number wrong. But at United We Dream, we're split up into traditional comms and digital comms. Um, I think Jose mentioned like this work would not have been possible without our advocacy team, without our field and organizing team, without our operations team, without our executive director, our COO, all the folks that keep us running, our development team that allows us to have the funds to do this work. So all of us at United We Dream, I think in total around last year, we were a team of about 40, 50 folks all around at United We Dream. But yes, our communications and digital team, I will share, we are small, but we are mighty. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And so I suppose that that begs one of the questions. You raised this, which was comms has to sit at the strategy table. And I know this is a source of frustration for an awful lot of folks around the globe. You do comms work and folks show up at the end of some big strategy process and hand you something and say, gosh, can you get this on the front page of the New York Times? Is that how it worked at United We Dream? I'll let Jose take that it's a loaded uh, question. Yeah, no, that's definitely not how how it's it works with us. And I would I would say that it's important to make sure that you know at the beginning of conversations, um, which we're always in conversation to take taking action on a variety of different things. And so we always make sure that we're bringing all of our teams together. I think as communicators, we have a really important role to play. Uh, we have our 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 hand on the pulse of what's happening in the moment. What is the zeitgeist? Um, how is what we are hoping to get across going to come across? Actually, uh, we have a really good understanding. And I want to say that I was really tasked with I would quote unquote like selling these videos to reporters. And because I was involved in the process from the beginning, I knew how to do that. Like I could tell a passionate story to a reporter to make them say, I want to tell that story. Like you're talking to me about this in a way that is so impactful that I actually would be missing out if I didn't tell this story. And so it's important for us as communicators to, to be in, in those rooms. And I would say, um, to give a solution for folks that maybe that isn't the case, I think it's important for us to sort of take that initiative and, and make the case for why, and hopefully we helped a little bit today, make the case for why you should be in those rooms and in those spaces and speaking up to make sure that your voice is heard so you can really help out. We have another question coming in and it's our friend Emily coming in from Washington DC from the Pew Charitable Trusts. Emily, welcome. Hi, everyone. Congratulations, Jose and Bruna, on such an amazing campaign. Um, I did have a question just about what was maybe the biggest challenge you faced in execution um, or, you know, just throughout the planning of this year-long um, campaign? Yeah, I'll share one and then maybe Jose can share another. I think for us is that because it was a year-long campaign, it's really hard to keep the attention of the media and the American people on an issue for a year. I mean, some a news breaks now, you get maybe three days, maybe a week if you're lucky. It's really hard to have continuous attention. And so I think what we hope we showed you today is that there were peaks and valleys, right? There were moments we had to create to ensure that the attention was coming back to us. Um, I mean, obviously COVID was a huge challenge and what was happening in our country at the time. Um, but we really leaned into it. We wanted to talk about what was happening. And I think that's how we were able to overcome that challenge. But when we, you know, when Jose and I were sitting down in December of 2019, planning out what 2020 would look like, none of those plans came to fruition. We had to start from scratch when COVID became a thing. Um, and with the, you know, racial uprisings that were happening in our country, all of those plans got scrapped. But I think at the end of the day, 
you have to be scrappy and you have to be agile like we talked about um, and that helped us um, overcome those challenges. Yeah, and I think the only thing that I would add to that is that, you know, I think a big challenge was really um, the reality that undocumented people were facing in our country at that time. You know, we were seeing um, people being really scared because of COVID-19. And the reality was that for many undocumented people, they couldn't stay home. Uh, and if they did, they couldn't um, you know, make money to feed their family. Uh, and so how were we making sure that for a lot of DACA recipients, you know, I as a DACA recipient had the privilege of, of working from home. And so how were we working to make sure that we were uh, broadening the conversation, including as many people as possible, uh, and making the realities of, of all undocumented people known? Uh, because at those same times, as we were waiting for this decision, Congress was making really important decisions about who would get relief during, during the pandemic. And undocumented people were largely left out. And so it was a really, really uh, important challenge that we took on to make sure that we were expanding and broadening that conversation. Looks like we have another question, and I want to make sure I get this name right, so forgive me again. Adalia, I'm getting that properly. Adalia. Adalia, yes. Um, thank you so much. My question was just about, when I think about that time, um, I think about the movement building was just so strong, like the images that we saw in the New York Times, on Twitter, um, the home, hashtag home is here, hashtag here to stay. They were such rallying points. And so I'm wondering how as a team did you all um, strategize? Did you all test those slogans? Like how did you all land on those points that you knew would, be, would become sort of like these national rallying calls? Um, well, Home is Here has been around since before the, the or sorry, Here to Stay has been around since before um, the Home is Here campaign. But I think the, the best way to answer that is that because we live this life, we were able to bring that to, to reality. Uh, you know, we were able to really make the rallying cry after, um, you know, after the election of Donald Trump, who had really ran on a very anti-immigrant um, rhetoric and agenda and saying like, we're here to stay. Like we are undocumented, we are unafraid, we are here to stay. And it really is about that empowering messaging. And I think when it came to making decisions about the Home is Here campaign and, and like landing on that moniker, it was really building on that and, and building on the realities that we were facing um, as directly impacted people. There was a fun story too, I think, when you come, when you figure out like, how did you come up with this campaign? Because we have to do that all the time as communicators, come up with a new word, a new slogan, something else, right? Um, I think my favorite story about Home is Here is that like our digital team and our field team, and as we were like deciding what it would look like, every little detail was important down to like the color, right? The yellow. Um, I know our, our, our digital team really thought about what that color symbolized for folks, right? And my digital person might say I'm completely wrong here, but I think like the yellow for us symbolized um, sunflowers and the sun and what that like idea meant to you. So like even those small little details that maybe doesn't come across in a news article or on a tweet, like for us, those details matter because at the core of movement work and like an um, organization that is led by members is that you have to get your members excited about it. So it's not just, you don't ask yourself the questions of like, well, the media, you know, published a story or will the Supreme Court justice like understand this? At the core of a membership based organization is like, will your members be excited about this and turn out? 
right? And that's how you get here to stay in home this year is we created something that brought that energy, that passion, that tenacity of what immigrants are at, at our core of who we are. We brought that out in this like very visual form and we got our members to take action and then therefore got allies to take action and therefore got the media to, to take a look at us, right? And I think those details are really important. And I think Jose shared this, like we are able to sell it because we truly believe in it, right? And that I think makes a huge difference when you're a communicator. All right, we have time for one more question. It's gonna to go to our friend, Jen. Jen, what do you got? Hey. Uh, thanks so much. Um, thanks for sharing your amazing work. Um, you had talked earlier about um, trying to both shift preconceived notions and get more nuance into the heads of the media that were, you were trying to get to write about this story. And I'm curious just if you could share a little bit about how you did that, like what the tactics, what the specific way, ways that you did that were, because I think that's something we all face. Yeah, I would say twofold things. One is the relationships that we're building with reporters. So I'm constantly building relationships with reporters, even if I'm not trying to get them to cover something. I like to think of myself as a resource. So, oh, you have this question, I cannot answer it, but I know how to direct you. So building relationships with reporters is really important. Um, and then the second piece of how we were able to, to make this happen was working really, really diligently with our spokespeople and people who were telling our stories, their stories. It was important for us to know what stories we had. And those were the stories that we were making sure that we were connecting with reporters. You know, a lot of times we have, we get really generic requests sometimes about from reporters, like I want to talk to a DACA recipient who's impacted by this. Um, it's not very specific. And so it's up to us to recognize like, who are the stories that we have? Let's put them with someone whose story is not often told by the media. And so those are some of the ways that we can make some of those decisions. Um, Bruna, I don't know if you would add to that. No, I think you covered it. I know there's going to be a dozen more questions. And so I'm going to take the privilege of making an offer on y'all's behalf, which is you're going to be with us for the next couple of days. So if folks reach out to you in Slack, is it cool if they ask questions, come with questions? Definitely. Yes. All right, Bruna, I'm going to hand it to you to take us home. And then I'm going to be back a quick minute just to get everybody where they need to go next. Thank you both. Thank you so much, Sean. We loved spending this time with you, celebrating our win and sharing our communication strategies and lessons from the Home Is Here campaign. But the reality is that our fight is not over. Republican politicians continue to attack the DACA program. Just this summer, Texas Judge Hainan ruled to end DACA as we know it, keeping immigrant youth from applying to DACA for the first time. Our legal fight to protect DACA continues. And the truth is that we might end up at the Supreme Court again. At the same time, United We Dream is leading our undeniable campaign to demand that Democrats in Congress deliver citizenship for millions of people, including DACA recipients, through their reconciliation package, or better known as the Build Back Better Act. DACA for us has always been the floor, not the ceiling. Undocumented people like Jose and I deserve a pathway to citizenship. At United We Dream, we believe that our liberation is tied to one another. So while many of us continue to be denied basic human rights by our government, this cannot be a true democracy. We need you, the ones of you who've been listening to us for this last hour, we need you to join us in our fight to deliver citizenship this year. Join us on Twitter at UWD Action or at United We Dream to make calls to Democrats to deliver citizenship no matter what. Thank you all again. We hope you enjoyed our case study. Have a great, have a great rest of your day here at ComNet.
Well, a huge thanks to you both. We are incredibly grateful and honored to count you among the winners of the Clarence B. Jones Award. You are now joining the Truth, and Truth Initiative, Florida Rights Restoration Campaign, or, uh, Coalition, excuse me, and a step ahead Chattanooga, who've all done extraordinary work. And our goal through this award, which has been provided to us uh, support from the Heinz Endowment, the goal is pretty simple. We wanna keep lifting up stories of communications work that has had profound impact and help to reshape narratives, help to change our culture, help to shift policies. It's really important we have that so that all the folks working in the social sector understand how powerful a lever communications can be to deliver change. So with that, huge gratitude to both Bruna and Jose and all of the folks involved in United We Dream. And I'm still marveling at the idea that it's the two of you who sit inside the comp shop. 